0: Welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Herb podcast telling the stories of women living across regional, rural and remote Australia. And welcome to a brand new season of our podcast, Season 13. Thank you to everyone who's been following along and a big hello to all of our new listeners. I'm Sammy O'Brien, your host for the season. As always, we have some wonderful, inspiring and very hard-working women from the land chatting with us over the next few months, sharing their unique yarns from all of the far-flung corners of our great country. Our first guest is Laurie Pensini. You may recognise Laurie's name from the latest cover of Crazy Her. It's our first ever illustrated cover and we couldn't be more thrilled to have her work showcased in our magazine. The way Laurie speaks is so poetic. It's not hard to guess that she's a creative. From the very beginning, she explains her strong and innate connection with the flora that surrounded her. Her connection to the land runs deep, shaping not only her art, but also the very lens through which she views the world. We're so excited to have you. We're absolutely in love with your artwork. But before we get into all of that, I just wanted to go from the beginning from your early years. What was your earliest memory as a child growing up on a farm in WA? Oh,
1: I, I had a, a wonderful upbringing. Um, I was born in 1970 um, in a small rural town called marriage in the wheat belt of WA in the southwest. And um, we just, uh, there was no mobile phones or internet or, or even television. So it was basically in the bush most of the time. So we were just really feral, um, dirty. Um, and also it was really unstructured playing. What I loved about it was that it was just anything was a possibility and we um, basically used our resources, which was just just the natural
0: world. Do you think that's sort of what started you on the pathway to creativity? Absolutely.
1: I mean, the, um, the bush was my friend. My sisters were a bit younger than I was, so they weren't worth playing with until we got a lot older. Um, so I spent a lot of time outside um, with the animals. Um, and I used to, um, when I was little, I had this this idea that, that the bush had different languages, like everything in the bush had languages. So the the trees spoke to the birds and the birds spoke to the uh, flowers and um, even the creeks and the hills, they were all sort of these sleeping animals or these um these creatures um, that had feelings and language and I felt like I was the only one that really didn't have um, that I couldn't communicate to them so I used to spend hours and hours just um, you know sitting with the trees trying to mimic their language or mimic their movement so I could fit in so it was an endless fascination for me um, and wonderful for my parents because they um, they didn't have to deal with a child that was bored.
0: Where do you think that came from? Well, I said, I, look, I didn't
1: know at the time. Um, they just thought I was um, a fanciful child with a big imagination. Um, but I actually have just done some research um, and reconnected uh, with the Indigenous side of our family and I was talking to, to Uncle Clint recently, um, he's a Noongar law, lawman, and I was telling him how I felt spiritually connected to to these, the landscape and its different languages and that I'd felt um, quite like I was... Um, Like a little bit crazy, you know, having these ideas. And um, he just uh, basically, you know, gave me a hug and said, "Um, No, I, you know, I totally get it. And it was really, it was really powerful having that emotion and that feeling validated by a young man. It was just, it was wonderful.
0: Incredible, isn't it? Because it's not like you would have known anything about sort of that side of things when you were so young. So it obviously is really just within you.
1: Absolutely. It was really powerful. It was like a jigsaw puzzle. A piece of the puzzle had, you know, come into play and I, and I could see the full picture because it didn't make sense. It felt so right and so deep when I was little. It was just a part of my whole being. But, you know, as a, as a young adult and a teenager, that wasn't considered something, you know, worthy, but you, know, you wouldn't talk like that, especially in a small town. So yeah, it was just lovely, you know, talking to, um, talking to Uncle Clint about just having, having that spiritual connection to the landscape. Um, and then also understanding our, um, our family history of having Indigenous bloodlines as well, like knowing that that connection is, you know, that's a blood connection too to the landscape.
0: Was that always something that was celebrated within your family or that was something that was sort of put to the side?
1: No, no, it was um, it was probably made aware of. We've been uh, we're eighth generation graziers, so we've been on the lands um since colonial first settlement, and we've had unbroken tenure to the landscape. So I just presumed that that my connection was coming from that you know, the epigenetics the inherited uh, stories of the landscape, and that was definitely one side of it. But I think it ran deeper because um, you know, I just didn't, I had more of an influence more than just. My great grandmother's stories. It went. It went way back, and, and all of these stories have been handed down since the since the beginning. So, um, yeah, I feel. I feel that when I paint.
0: Now, your mum always discouraged your painting when you were growing up. In her eyes, it sort of wasn't considered a proper profession. I guess you could say. So, what did you do when you finished school? Uh, yes, it wasn't
1: it wasn't uh, considered a serious profession, and you um, know, if looking at the seventies what was i eighty eight when i graduated eighty seven when I graduated? you know really there wasn't a lot of opportunities in the arts for women, especially rural women and and rural women from w a as well so um and she came from a poor family, so she was basically saying you, know, you must have some sort of um Standing in society, um, so it was really important to her. So, um, well, like most teenagers, I left, uh, left my small town and went to the city, and um, you know the lights were alluring and just just so much activity, rather um, than just having the football um, on a Sunday. So um, I went to Perth, and God, I, I did everything. I, you know, we sold. Roses on a Friday night, um, that I think we only lasted one night there, my cousin and I. <laughs> I was we real terrible. I think we had 50 roses to sell this off to. And that was to our co- other cousin's boyfriend. So that didn't last long. Um, but eventually I got a job in a temping agency because I did work for dad, um, in his, um, office. So I knew how to type and run an office. So I got a temping job and then that led to Barrack Silicon, which was a, uh, is a mining company. And, um, one day they were short of a drawer. And they said, look, we need a few drawings drawn up, some shading and whatnot. Does anybody here can do that? And I put my hand up and said, yeah, I can do that. And um, so they thought I was pretty good um, at colouring in. And then they offered me, uh, the, they suggested I go to Tate. So I, I, um, after a couple of years, I started an architectural drafting degree, but uh, I barely graduated before I met my husband.
0: So that was sort of, I guess, what allowed you to use your creative side in a job that wasn't very creative.
1: Yeah, I oh, was well, colouring in colouring on the lines. I don't know how creative you'd call that. But yeah, there was no flexibility in that. Yeah, I think it just opened up the pathway. I'm a, I'm a strong believer in um, you know, nothing is wasted. And that architectural drafting degree or certificate was um, it's a really powerful tool in being able to, um, even though it's quite structured, and that's not how I paint, but it, it gave me a really good spatial awareness and being able to plan things. Um, yeah, definitely the, the negative and positive space was, was an advantage and also perspectives. I think it was the biggest thing I could take away from it. But like I said, I moved uh, with my husband and I swapped architectural drafting for drafting cattle very quickly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. And you met your lovely husband when you were um, 19 at the local pub and not long after moving, uh, sorry, not long after meeting him, you moved to his family cattle station in the Pilbara. Tell me what that move was like. Well, I'd never been further north
1: Perth Perth
0: um, before.
1: So, you know, it was exhilarating and frightening uh, at the same time. And I basically just finished my uh, certificate and, and uh, we left. Um, I told Mum and Dad. Dad was he, was he was very supportive. He just loved. He he um, he was a big man on on following your heart and doing what you love because then um, you'll be good at it because you've got your whole body going into it. Whereas Mum, it took many, it took a few years for her to warm up because she thought, you know, for me to have this certificate, have some sort of qualification, finally, and then have me turn around and say I'm going to be a camp cook, you know, <laughs> and a jacket for a She's just like, oh, yeah, you know, okay. It took a bit for her to get come around.
0: The Pilbara must have been, well, it was a massive contrast to what you were used to further south, but being off a property, was that quite an easy transition for you? No, it
1: wasn't. Like I thought it would be. Um, And I was very Pollyanna. I went up there with stars in my eyes um, and that got knocked out at me pretty quickly when we hit the summer. No, completely different. We had horses, so that was the only thing that was common, but um, I was cooking and I I um, I think my my grandmother said, good Lord, she can only cook uh, toast, so it was going to be interesting to see how she would go up there cooking for men. So, yeah, everything, everything was different. The fact that, you know, you had to be really resourceful, like the food, um, you had to make it last. Um, we grew our own vegetables, uh, we did our own meat, but... Yeah, there was no twenty-four hour power. There was no internet, or, or um, so it was really. Yeah, you're very isolated, um, and you just had to manage and make do. I mean, there are plenty of times where you know you only have some beetroot left in the larder, and go right, what can I do with beetroot? Like, what sort of cake can I make out of that? Um, you just you become really resourceful. Like, even pastry was made from scratch. Uh, bread. I remember having to whip a pavlova by fork one day because we didn't have power. That was interesting. <laughs> you took me half a day. Yeah, it was really I found out a lot
0: about myself
1: um, through, through the
0: adversity. And I guess the conditions that you were living in would have been a lot tougher than what you were used to. Absolutely.
1: Given, yeah, we arrived, I think it was in November, so hitting, um, hitting the high 30s to 40s. Um, and in the summer, we're on the homestead sat on Wailoo, sat on this um, massive ironstone of Iron Ore Hill. So we had a lot of uh, radiating heat. Fortunately for us, it was a beautiful homestead where we kept um, the lawns and we kept a lot of shade and lawn. And it was really an oasis, especially when we hit uh, drought and, and the hard summers when it didn't rain. That was, um you know, I just thought it, would, yeah, it was an incredible oasis um, in a place to to come home and you know, find green grass and, and just be yeah just a mental relief from the relentless weather up there. Yeah. It was it was pretty, you oh, know, yeah. pretty grueling. I did have um well, before I went up north I did have this clairvoyant um had a had a, a session with a clairvoyant and she said, Oh, your life is going to be you know a red carpet. And you know, halfway through the summer I, I was thinking about that red carpet, thinking, I think she got confused with the red
0: dirt. dirt <laughs> a few dirt storms.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, uh, you were telling me previously that some nights or most nights you'd sleep outside on the grass on a wet mattress just because it was so hot.
1: It was, yeah. We just, um, my husband would just uh, get the hose and wet the bed down, not just a light sprinkling. You just basically saturate We had a few jackaroos that would sleep next to the pool. They just roll the swag out by the pool. and just keep, you know, rolling into the pool. Um, to get through. Yeah, we did have a little air conditioning, um, like in the middle of the day inside where we tried to get some relief. And I think it got down to 32 degrees was the coolest. And we did have a bower shed, but that was run over with snakes. So that we, um, we abandoned that pretty, pretty quickly because the little, um, zebra finches would come in because the cool, I'm not quite sure if you're familiar with, with a bower shed, but it's, it's kind of like packed spin effects. You just get this grass and, and a little bit of chicken wire and you build up the walls and then you put a sort of tap. Um, a line of irrigation on the top and the water drips down so then when the breeze comes if there's a breeze you know it um it cools you down it works incredibly it's so efficient but the birds like it and so do the snakes so um yeah we didn't spend a lot of time but you were outside
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah,
1: on the lawn so at least you could see things coming right. yeah. <laughs> what did your typical day
0: at Wailoo look like
1: well, it was really, yeah, yeah, it was long. Um I'm a, I'm a slip of a girl, so I found it just really physically exhausting. Um I, Yeah, you'd wake up before dawn, especially in summer, you'd want to get ahead of the heat, so your blessed white cockies would wake you up before dawn regardless. And then you'd start the ovens or you'd start um the grill pans, with, especially in mushroom time. It was, um I think it had, I think the most I cooked for was 15. Yeah, that, that varied, but over the summer it was just a bare crew of myself and Warren and his brother Evan so yeah it was sort of breakfast uh they were so spoiled it was basically cooked breakfast and then cooked smokers and then cooked lunch and then cooked uh, afternoon tea and then you know sweets at night after tea so it was a full-time job cooking.
0: Coming from a girl who your dad said could only cook toast what was it like having to actually come up with meals that would impress a whole camp?
1: Oh, yeah, like the cold and wattle book. You know, that was a blessing. You know, the old, the real old, true and tried recipes and, and just a, and a bit of the, um, the old grapevine with a few other station ladies, you know, swapping recipes and things. So you basically, you basically had, you know, a good dozen recipes that you just kept trotting out. Um, and also the men were pretty, it was just basic, pretty basic food. It was just keep the protein up. No fancy thing. We did have a vegetarian, a house girl come up one year, it was gorgeous and she was, um, decided to make this broccoli forest and, um, and, and they got to the meal, the main meal, and, and they said, you've got where else, you know, what else have we got besides broccoli?
0: She, the meat? <laughs> yeah. And she's like,
1: oh, you've done so many hours of this beautiful broccoli forest thing. But, um, no, it was just, yeah, feed the meat and potato and then the rest, is, you know, you can get away with.
0: <laughs> Laurie, was it while you were living on the station that you started to explore your art? It was,
1: and it, and it came by accident. Like I said, you know, we started the day early, um, and we worked through, um, in the winter it was always mustering. So. Um, those days were long um, and basically you went by the weather, you know, as, as long as you could, uh, the light was still there, you'd be working. But my auntie, um, she was really, uh, my auntie from England, so my my dad's youngest sister was um, absolutely petrified of the isolation for me and the fact that I didn't have, I think I was there for the first summer, I didn't have any women close by, so it was just, um, yeah, it was just a real male-dominated area, um, industry. And uh, she was. Uh, she just thought um, I would go crazy mentally, crazy um, from the isolation. And so she was um, always sending these um, books on um, mental self self help. Like there was one I always remember. It was called the Yellow Wallpaper, about this lady in England who was confined to a room. And after a while, she began to um, make stories up about the wallpaper. And in the end, she went crazy. So she was sort of like giving me these hints about you know just doing something. And after a while, I think they didn't cut it. She'd organised a thousand pounds worth of material um from london to to come out by New South Wales by a cattle truck up to the station and uh the yeah, all these all these supplies rocked up one day, just paints and pencils and and a ten metre roll of canvas and you know that was a lot of money in those days, and I'd never had anything spent like that on me so it was um yeah, I was real well yeah, I felt really guilty because I thought, God I had to pay her back so i'll I'll draw something to pay her back. And just with the instruction too, she left with, a ten, um, with a, a, the 10-metre um, roller canvas. You know, for Christ's <laughs> sake, Laurie, just do something, do something. But I don't think she really realised how hard it was. You know, the animals don't, you know, they don't knock off at five and it's a seven-day-a-week kind of um, job and it's just, you just got to get on with things. You haven't got time to, to relax or anything. So I felt really, really guilty and so I'd take off some of my siesta, which is in you know, the arms like Europe. You know, after lunch you'd have a little sleep in the heat of the day so I would have to forego that sleep and I'd um, roll out some canvas on the kitchen table and I'd have to you know paint and then unroll it again I'd clear it all away to to serve food afterwards so that was my my painting time yeah so that
0: that's how it all began. And even at that time you would have been so exhausted foregoing that nap but was that something that you looked forward to each day getting your paints out?
1: I did and I think it it was more frustration than um Enjoy because just, I just couldn't get it right. Um, you know, like I hadn't, I hadn't drawn for years. It was my, um, my happy place when I was little. But, you know, as a teenager and and a young adult, um, or, you know, moving up, before I moved up to the station, um, it wasn't, it was something that I pushed aside because I didn't think it was, um, something worthy. But yeah, it was, it was more frustration. I thought, damn, you know, I can be better than this. You know, know, I used to be able to draw. So it was just this fixation on getting it right. And then it just became, it became an obsession because I, I didn't really want to, Draw it correctly because there were no no mobile phones then, so you couldn't capture images. So basically, you'd see an image of something, and then you record it in your head, and you'd have to paint the impression of it afterwards. So it was these impressions, and I sort of started to work out that I needed to to uh, find the spirit of it, like you know, rather than trying to draw it exactly. So that spirit was always elusive. It's like catching whispers. It was really hard to to pin it down into something that I was happy with.
0: Tell me about the first time that your art was recognised, that you showed someone what you'd done.
1: Well, yeah, it was from that of, you know, I'm not happy with it, Um, try again, try again, try again. So I've ended up building up a little portfolio and uh, the portfolio did take pride of place um, and it was actually allowed in the bedroom under the bed. Um, and that was purely poor for, um, for safety is to stop the dirt and the rodents and the geckos and everything else from getting to it while we were outside on the lawn. Um, so yeah, word got around that I was drawing and, um, a lady, Catherine Stafford from Stafford Studios, and she was, um, started an art gallery in the Pilbara in Caratha. And she'd, she'd heard from the other local station ladies that I was uh, drawing and, um, to check it out. So she rang me one day and, and said, could I come down? And that was, um, yeah, it was, it was a huge uh, feat because it was three and a half hours uh, drive and she rocked up one day and and showed me, um, or I showed her my work and uh, she said, these are good enough to exhibit. Would you like to exhibit? And um, that was a really difficult time because I'd never set foot inside of an art gallery. Our family weren't arts-minded arts and I really struggled with the concept. I felt like, you know, imposter syndrome that I was exhibiting and I hadn't been taught and and I'd never seen anybody else's work either so I didn't know how to judge against, you know, compare against my peers so it was absolutely frightening but um yeah somehow I said yes and um now off we went
0: so you're dragging the artwork out from under your bed and then it ends up in the gallery <laughs> yeah it did although one of the pieces
1: I did say that, that that was to protect them um one of the pieces we ended up showing did have a little um a little gecko or a mouse or something had run across it in the in the wet paint and had eaten some of the paint didn't like it and ran off and I remember the lady at the gallery where um well, one of the the clients was saying, "Is that a rodent? Is that I can see tracks." And we had to uh, we had to take it back and repaint the, over the tracks. But I actually really liked it. I thought that was really authentic.
0: <laughs> That's cute too. <laughs> what what inspires? What's your biggest inspiration for your artwork? It's so different to anything I've ever seen before.
1: Uh oh, look, it, it took me years to find find myself because I was just um like I said. I think. Being self-taught, I didn't have a lot of art knowledge. In fact, I had no art knowledge around, you know, technique or um even history, art history. So I couldn't rely on other other forms. So I um but I had all this lived experience. And and the deeper I went into the lived experience of what I was feeling on the landscape, the further back in time I went. So I, I started um yeah, heading back to my childhood and, and those feelings um, and, you know, that beautiful, the sense of being a child where, you know, it's, um, you can be anything. So uh, extending that imagination back there and then uh, researching my family. So it, yeah, it's really coming from, from within.
0: Your studio is located on your property where you are now. You're no longer in the Pilbara. Can you describe to me what you see when you look out your window?
1: Oh well we brought the cows down from um Pilbara. So um I still see see the cows. So basically um it's a it's a room that I've put onto the end of the house because I didn't like the idea of not being there for the kids and being around them. So um, yeah, we built a studio onto the end of the house and basically it's yeah, two walls of glass. So what I see is the, the horse paddock and the cattle and the bull paddock um and then the sheds. So um and I'm only about hundred metres from the the bush, so we've some virgin bush um uh, with grass trees or valga trees and a granite outcrops and, and a creek. So yeah, really fortunate. I'm just, almost just unimmersed every day, and we having a particularly hard day, which today has just been a nightmare. And just you know, I had all this confidence yesterday. It's just not there. Today. The piece is just not working out. So I'll
0: go for a walk later on,
1: and it won't take me long to reconnect.
0: Your husband Warren is one of your biggest supporters. Was he a big part of why you sort of pursued your creative work? It, it, yeah, it,
1: now he definitely is. Um, in the early days, I was sort of like, oh, how do we combine art and beef? <laughs> I don't think that that's a complementary pairing like wine and cheese. It just kind of didn't really go. But um, if you if you peel that aside, essentially that, you know, our love for the landscape and um, his fourth generation brazier, I think it was the love for the landscape. And not only that, but like we feel like we're custodians of the landscape. And I think it's, um, it's our duty, whether you're black, white or brindle to, to care for your landscape and to leave it in a better shape than when you first got it. So it was that love for, um, for the bush and, and country that has probably married our, our two thought processes and our journeys together. And that's been, um, really wonderful. Um, I'm barely on a horse anymore. Um, yeah, my horses, my cool horses are. Yeah, old and fat outside, retiring <laughs> while I, I spend most of my time in, in the studio,
0: um, and Warren still works the farm. Your beautiful artwork is a mix of people with a botanical element. Talk to me about that and explain to me why that came about.
1: I'm a figurative, what, what do I call myself? I'm a figurative narrative artist, and um, so I like to tell stories about the bush um and our connection to it I, i'm really into just um our relationship with a landscape and um you know for better or for worse and so i started to to pick up on these elements um of the landscape and and how they the, how they felt and the spirit of it so i created this language of flowers which has become quite a signature in my art piece where i will say say for say for example the banksia so i research um the ecological aspects of of the banksia and then I will marry it with. So, for example, the banksia it grows in poor soil and it's one of the biggest feeders of the bush. Um, and it can flower in in drought and it doesn't require a lot of rain. So, you know, I see the resilience and strength of that plant. Um, and I, and I've now compared that to say the the women in my family, especially the matriarchal you know, rural women. And I see the resilience and strength in them and 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 how they have to get through. Um, so I've sort of paired that up and think, okay, now the banks here, the strength of the banks here is, is the strength of the women. So then I'll, I'll implement and, and, fuse those two together. So the voice of that woman becomes the banks here and vice versa. So it's a sort of a symbiotic relationship and it's sort of dual purpose. It's sort of reconnecting you to, um, your own strengths and virtues, but it's also, um, connecting you to the bush as well and, um, and country. And so it's a way of going, you know, I get a lot of people come up to me now and say, Oh yeah, I see a banks here in a different light. I see strength and resilience now um through the painting so it's a way of yeah connecting people back to the landscape in, in a storytelling form
0: oh, I think that's so beautiful I love that now your artwork is on the front cover of the latest issue of Grazy Her Magazine what was the meaning behind the piece that was chosen for the front cover
1: well that was um that's uh, an interpretation of Aunty Jill um when she first gave me my first one to the station and she sent me all of those paints um and that was my uh, so, yes, yeah, she started it all. Um, but that was my time as a Jillaroo. And, um, I think we, you know, we mentioned before about, you know, how, uh, the transition of going from a small farm up into the station. And, um, I'd never actually even seen cattle before, never been in a paddock with a cow before. So i absolutely petrified. Mm-hmm. Um, I could ride a horse, but, you know, it was more dressage than actually, um, know yeah, cowboy style. So, um, yeah, the, that, that particular painting is, uh, running in the scrubbers where in the, in the, day when I was up there there were a lot of uh, wild cattle or scrubbers and we had to sort of clean up that country so we used a lot of horse uh, or wagon and and a fixed wing plane to to go into this country where you had the wild cattle so that's
0: um yeah that painting is about those early days of, of running in cattle on horses and why was that particular piece so special to you as opposed to everything else that you've done
1: Oh, just the thrill of it, uh, the thrill and the fear of it. I think, and that's the extreme of the northwest. You know, it's um, it's good or it's bad or it's ugly. And I think, it, you know, everything about that piece is all of it. You know, I've got the comfort of my auntie and the support. But, you know, in, in the landscape, um, and, um, there was, there's hardly any comfort in that landscape up there, um, and, and, the cattle. So, um, yeah, I think it's just the, yeah, the, the yin and the yang of that, the extremes of that, that's really powerful. I mean, it sounds, you know, I'm, I'm romanticizing, it sounds wonderful, you know, but it's absolutely frightening and, and hard yakka while
0: you're there. Mm-hmm. You've recently exhibited at Michael Reed Miranda Gallery as part of Crazy Horse Art Station. How was that experience for you? Well, I um, yeah, I loved it. I uh, what I really
1: enjoyed um, about heading over to Miranda was that it felt comfortable. So normally art galleries, uh, I find them quite intimidating sometimes. But with um, Michael Reed and what he's done with uh, Miranda, he just you, you know, it's it's a welcoming space, and also I'm just a huge advocate for um for cultural experiences in the bush, and that's um really lacking. So I found that um you know having you know him and um God his business sense, well not just business sense, but just saying right, I'll I'll build it and they shall come. You know, like in the middle of nowhere, I was quite surprised at how how remote it was. It's mm-hmm. kind of like WA. Um, so it was really empowering to you know to drive so far and and then find this beautiful little um gorgeous town. And, um, and having arts in it. You know, I think, I think it would be, be lovely if we could have a bit more of that. So, you know, people drive out there. It's become a location, but it's, it's flexible. It's a beautiful space. Um, and it has great art and great artists. You know, the, the galleries, beautiful lighting. Um, and the space is great. So it feels like, you know, what you could walk into in the city, but you've got that country, um, hospitality as well.
0: Was it nice also exhibiting with other rural women as opposed to just? all other artists they were all rural women yeah that was great unfortunately there was
1: enough time to you know find out everybody else has a story it, and it's wonderful to hear their story and how they create because you know, being an artist isn't um especially a rural artist it's, it's quite isolated I mean we have got tools now with um you know texting and and uh, social media but generally it's isolated so you actually meet somebody in person for me especially it's quite rare it's like I would I would go about eight months to build up a body of work and I'll just put my head down and I won't, you know, pop up at the end and um, say hi to friends and family that have been neglected. So it was really lovely um, to actually have a community of artists because that's sort of quite, quite lacking in my world.
0: Some of the pieces from the exhibition are still for sale and are still on display in the gallery. How can people access those?
1: Well, um, yeah, it's great. So if you have if you're not in the area, um Ronda um or close by, they have a, a wonderful online presence as well. So you can either email directly and James and, and the team will will help you out there with if you're looking for a particular size or whatnot, and then they can send you images or you can have basically from the from the uh, the website, which is great. And I think um what I do like about it, if you're familiar with that artist's work and you know the caliber of their work then you're not so it's not such an intimidating process to to buy online and also um, yeah just getting the backing from from Michael Reed and his galleries.
0: I wanted to also talk to you about the property that you guys are currently on um, and the wonderful work that you're doing in the way of sustainable regenerative farming. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, that's an exciting, exciting process. And I guess it was born from um, our time in the Pilbara where we had this landscape as um, a pastoral lease and, and it's really hard to manipulate that landscape. I don't think you're allowed to anyway. So it was it was a real clean, clean life with no chemicals. And, um, and we had to really such an old, fragile country that we really had to look after it. And if you didn't, you, you really paid the consequences of it. So we sort of um, weren't grown up in that in that area with that sort of philosophy and um, so coming down to the farm, we were doing everything backwards or left the field compared to everybody else because what we started off like farming like everyone else and it just didn't feel right because there were so many um, inputs and it was all manipulated and it's like well, how do we create that balance where we've got that natural product um, We also saw that um, we had a lot of problems with the landscape like a lot of erosion um, sold from overclearing and, and and it was sort of unproductive country, so we looked at how do we we bring it, take it back to its natural form, and how do we use it? How do we create a dual purpose where we can farm, but we can uh, farm sustainably so that we're actually enhancing the environment? So we started looking at um, indigenous land methods, and this is where I was able to reconnect with family, which was, was absolutely wonderful because I didn't realise they were family. Around you know bringing on some indigenous methods like mosaic burning, where we do cool burning across the landscape. Um, we're fortunate that we've got some uh, natural capital on our place, where we've got natural bush. So what we're doing is we're working close with the Maloon Institute over in New South Wales around rehydrating the landscape, so creating nature corridors between the areas of bush, so they can feed. there on top of the hills and they can join. Uh, they're like little corridors that join uh, one bush area to another bush area, so your birds and your little marsupials and, and like chuditchers and thescugales and things can move across the landscape. Um, in safety, so they're not tied to this one little area where they where the, the you know they tire of their resources. So we've got um, we're sort of working with that. So we're helping um, the indigenous um, methods are helping with that around regenerating our natural bush, but also the the nutrients that you're getting from that, um, keeping those bush uh, keeping that bush healthy and, and with diversity. It's also flowing into the um, the farming areas where it's enhancing um, the the farming belts of our property. So we can farm better. So, you know, we're taking away that excess water and we're we're, we're fixing up the salt line areas. So that will increase our production over time with our cattle enterprise. So, um, yeah, it's a really, really exciting space to be in. But essentially it's quite old. It's almost going back in time and having a look at the old ways of doing things and applying the science to it.
0: And is that something that will be that's a very long-term goal? Is it something that is going it in. is you know
1: nature's nature's very slow I mean some of our we, we started off with a tree planting exercise I think we planted 35,000 trees and some of those well, and shrubs and things um, and some of those areas have been eaten out by nature and we're like damn it. <laughs> <laughs> our nature is eating out our nature. So that that's quite frustrating because we're actually trying to help nature. So yeah, it it is slow. Um, especially when you're not using um a lot of additives. Um it's a slower process, but what we're finding is really rewarding is that our seasons are lasting longer just by keeping cover on the ground, increasing our carbon content in our soil um and the the organic matter, we've been able to um not drought proof ourselves but keep the water on the place longer so that our summers, um yeah, our 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 livestock and our bush can get through these weather
0: extremes you're doing a wonderful thing it all sounds incredible laurie what would your advice be to any young women whose dream it may be to become an artist or a creative but just like you they may have been discouraged do you have any advice
1: oh i would say follow your small voice I'm a big advocate for, um yeah, listening to, to the small voice inside of you. It's, it's always right. Um But interestingly, a mum, you know, she was always, um, no, 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 you've got to you know, do something worthwhile. And she ended up being one of my biggest supporters. In fact, she was terribly embarrassing. We'd have to almost hide the fact that I was having an exhibition because she'd come along and try and buy stuff. And <laughs> I had to end up having to say to the gallery, she is not allowed to purchase anything, you know. And um, but it never worked. Somehow, she she slipped through. Yeah, definitely be. um Yeah, finding, having, having the courage to just put it out there because it'll never, it'll never be good enough, you know, like because you're always growing. So what you did yesterday, you've already, you know, moved on from. So it's just, um, so that kind of sometimes stops people from, from having a go because they think, oh, the next piece is going to be better or the next idea will be better. But, um, it's a beautiful way of cataloguing, journeying your, your development as a person. Um, and what I love about it is that you can, You're reaching people, you're connecting to people, and, um, and if you can make a difference to one person, then, then it's, and that's worthwhile. But, uh, yeah, definitely follow your, follow your small voice, um, be courageous. You don't have to be confident. You just have to be courageous and never give up. Um, there's a lot of times where I think actually my first gallery I went along or my first set of paintings down, um, close to the city and I showed, I showed them and said, what do you think? And they said, go home and practice. And we know we don't want them. And, um, I was really in tears. So I was packing the paintings back up into the car and boot up in, uh, the back of the gallery and a person came along and I said, excuse me, but I saw those. Are they for sale? You know, so, um, it was like, yeah, it was just, God, if that man hadn't come along, would I would still be doing this? I don't know, but it was just, a, it was a good sign at the time. But yeah, if you, if you feel in your heart that um, what you're doing is, is great and you've got authenticity um, and integrity of what you're doing, then it's always going to work out.
0: I love the way Laurie looks at the world around her and I hope she's inspired someone out there to pursue that dream that might seem a little out of reach. I do hope you enjoyed our first episode back for the season and before you go we're so excited about our special subscription collaboration with Elders. A free Grazy Herd 2024 diary valued at 49 99 Our Grazy Her and Elders Diary celebrates women of the land and is just what you need to get organised for 2024. The diary's 160 pages are packed with notable country events, beautiful colour photography and handy goal-setting sections at the beginning of every month. Get it free when you subscribe for two or three years for yourself or for a friend. You can also purchase the diary individually at grazyher.com.au. Thank you again for your company on today's episode. I'm Sammy O'Brien. Stay well and I'll be back next week with yet another great story from around the country.